0: listening online, I only want you to feel a little guilty for staying home in your pajamas. All right, let's jump into it and turn the mic down a little bit. Feel like a robot. Um, Before I pray, I'd like to ask for some prayer from you guys, not necessarily right now, but as you take notes, it's good to write down prayer requests and things to pray through. Our aim on Wednesday nights differs from Sunday mornings. And uh, that we're aiming to cover larger portions of Scripture uh, in shorter amount of time, uh, in order that we may have a better overview of our Bibles as a whole. And so, in two thousand and three, when CrossPoint became a church, we started in John on Sunday mornings, and we're currently um, in John on Sunday mornings. And so, you have seven years there where we're taking it very slow. I don't think there is any better way of preaching the Word than doing it in an expository manner where you take it very slow, a verse, even a word at a time if it's necessary. But on Wednesday nights, our aim and our hope is that we could, someone who's maybe born into this fellowship could spend their childhood and, and early adult years even, and, and, and they turn 18 and they go off to college, and the hope is that they would have a pretty good grasp of the entire Scripture, that there wouldn't be huge pockets of the Word where they're just completely um, uninformed, have no idea what that is or where it came from. And so um, this is hard because, like tonight, we're going to cover two chapters, chapter 36 and chapter 37 of Genesis. Because the word always goes deeper than we do, um, it feels like you're always leaving something on the table. In general, um, I want y'all to be mindful that there's always more. Like if we get through a chapter, and it's even if we spend a few weeks in that chapter, there's always more. And so I was thinking that in general, it's not unrealistic to say that if you're a member of Crosspoint, it's really ideal that you are regularly reading through John for Sunday mornings and Genesis for Wednesday nights. Like really, if you're a member and you're coming on Wednesday nights and you're coming on Sundays... It's not unrealistic to think that it'd be good to be reading through Genesis and John pretty regularly, um, saturating ourselves in God's breathed out word and ready to hear and ready to respond. And the other thing in those prayers that I'm asking for is that you would ask God to give us guidance on the best way to give an overview of larger portions of Scripture. Because as we've talked about it, you can do a, like a survey where you kind of summarize a larger portion Or you can do like, take three chapters and do a specific exposition of something important in those chapters while then moving on and and not touching on other things. And it's hard because you're always leaving something on the table. The problem we're facing is that the Word of God is really rich. It's a good problem. Um, But we also don't want to miss out on Genesis and Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy. That's the plan for the next couple of years is to just kind of keep going through the Old Testament on Wednesdays. And we're considering how we do that with the children, we're considering how we do that in here, differences between the children and our students and young adults, and um, prayer in that is greatly appreciated. I would like to open with prayer and we will jump into these two chapters. Lord, we're thankful for this time. I'm thankful for your word, I'm thankful that, I'm thankful that we cannot plumb the depths of it in an hour. I'm thankful that there's never a time where we can take a portion of it and say, I got it. What that means for us is that we're completely dependent, we're completely needy, and we need you to illuminate things for us and to show us um, eternal divine realities that absolutely rock us to our core here where we are. Lord, I'm thankful that you always have more to say. I'm thankful that there's not a time where your glory has been completely revealed and there's nothing more to see. I pray that you would guide this time tonight. As we consider these two chapters in Genesis, I know that we're not going to get everything. I pray that you would divinely inspire the teaching and the communication and the conversation that we have here so that we don't miss out on what you would like us to see. I'm thankful that the Word is so rich that there's always more to see. And I'm eager that we're walking in this, that we're not just having a study that's flippant or... Um, without divine perspective. I pray that we're being rightly informed by your word as you see fit by the work of your Holy Spirit. There's been a lot of preparation that goes into these studies, uh, but we trust you completely on the delivery of these um, verses and uh, the insight therein. We're thankful that you are the alpha teacher and that you instruct us and guide us into a way of truth in a way that no man can do. We are fragile and common vessels, eager to be used for your glory and poured out as you see fit. We love you very much, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We learned in the last chapter, in chapter 35, it was really good because chapter 34 was a real drag, very hard, very difficult. Chapter 35, God comes in and swoops in, and we're reminded that he's not distant. And aloof, and we learn that God does not aim to be ignored, overlooked, or dismissed. And he goes to great lengths to make sure that you pay attention to what he's doing and how he's moving and what his plans are. I want to reiterate the truth that we visited previously. Previously in Genesis, we looked at when we were talking about Isaac and Rebecca and Eleazar, we had these three things that we talked about. And I, kind of, I would like to reintroduce them tonight before we dive into the scripture so that we can kind of have a a refocusing a little bit of paying attention to the details, worshiping God in the midst of the details, and then sharing the details with others so that they can worship God in a like manner. Those are three things to be mindful of as we move through these chapters because we're going to have a narrowed focus again tonight. It started, Genesis starts off with a really big focus. We have two chapters of creation. And then it narrows, and then you'll see it narrow to the lineage of Abraham, and you'll see it narrow, and it's narrowing now to the point where we are going to have an extremely narrowed focus on Joseph and God's work in his life. And that's going to prepare us for the Exodus, where we see God doing a a work in his people that um, is timeless and, and expresses things about his character that show us divine, eternal realities. It's all very big. And so pay attention to the details, worship God in the midst of the details, and share the details with others so that they can worship God in a like manner. We're about to narrow our view. We're going to spend the next 13 chapters considering God's work in the life of Joseph. 13 chapters. That's significant. We're starting in 37, and we're going to move on through 50, and we're pretty much talking about Joseph and his life and what God's doing there the whole time. So I want to take a few minutes to discuss before we do that what were some of I want to talk about low points and high points and we'll do high points second so that we're encouraged as we go into chapter 36. But the first low points. What were some of the low points in the life of God's chosen people that we've seen? Low points that you're like you look back and think, "Oh, I'm glad those are my relatives." Abraham lying about Sarah? Yeah, that was a, that was a bomb. Twice, <laughs> yeah. When he did that, and then again. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that happened. What else? Uh-huh. Yeah, goat hair thing. It was weird. Yep. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Huh? Yeah, foreign idols. We're gonna go see God, so y'all put away your foreign gods to go see God. Uh huh. Uh huh. Mhm. Yep. Now this is the story of redemption, right? Like this is the story y'all are telling me, like this is good, like God's good. What were the high points? God doing things for his own glory. Where do we see that specifically? Abraham and Sarah conceived a child in the old age cuz God does his work. What else? Yeah. Yeah. What else? Yeah, yeah. I think other high point Yeah God's protection after the massacre at Shechem Yeah 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 No one got dead Yeah uh-huh. Yeah That's awesome. See, I'm hoping y'all are seeing this pattern of the low points where when they turned from God and tried to do their own thing or lied to God or tried to trick God or deceive God or be godless in their words or godless in their pursuits. And then the high points are when God redeems. God does this. God took Jacob from being a poor guy with a staff in his hand and that was it to having flocks that were a great multitude and servants and everything else. And God came in and Sarah conceived at an old age, and God came in, and this reconciliation wasn't as bad as it could have been. And God came in and redeemed them, or saved them, removed them, or guided them. God is always moving. God is always doing more than we realize, and that's a theme for the rest of Genesis that really is going to open up tonight. It's the theme of providence, God's providence, and we're going to talk about it a little more. Um, But God he has been specific about making sure that His power and His might and His greatness and His uniqueness is observed. And God uh, will continue to reveal in this new theme, his providence. Look at chapter 36. I'm not going to read through all of chapter 36. Chapter 36 is mainly a chapter of genealogy. And and here's what I want us to see. I don't want to just dismiss it either. Um, While these chapters are still God-breathed, when you see a a list of genealogy, there may not be as much to glean, to, to learn from some expository deep truth. However... It is also not to be completely skipped over, because it would be easy to say, I'm trying to get through Genesis, and 36 is fairly boring, and just go straight to 37, but it's not to be skipped over. Particularly, I want you to look at verses 6 through 8. It says, then Esau took his wives, his sons, his daughters, and all the members of his household, his livestock, all his beasts, all his property that he had acquired in the land of Canaan. And he went into a land away from his brother Jacob, for their possessions were too great for them to dwell together. The land of their sojournings could not support them because of their livestock, so Esau settled in the hill country of Seir. Esau is Edom, so when you see Edomites, you see the offspring of Esau, just so we know. Esau's really well off, I and mean, he's got a lot of stuff there. Uh, while some of us may be prone to think that this is unfair, it's necessary to, con- uh, to consider the fleeting nature of such temporal treasures. One of the things missing in reference to Esau is a total lack of eternal language, It's all about what he has right now, what the plan is right now, and what he's going to do with all the flocks and the servants right now, and where he's going to settle right now. And there's a lack of this eternal language that we see in reference to some of God's chosen people. Now, why does Esau move from Jacob? He's making an intentional move away from Jacob. It's not just a random move. There's no room for them to dwell together with all the possessions. That's a lot of possessions, right? You're talking about pastures here. You're talking about flocks. Like all this acreage right here isn't enough to feed all these animals and all these flocks. And all of us can't dwell with all of you because there's just so much abundance. There's a real picture of abundance here. Where have we seen this before? We've already mentioned it once tonight. Two guys who can't dwell together. They ram in a lot. That's exactly right. Where they come and they say, uh, there's, we just got too much. There's just so much abundance that we can't hang together anymore because my cows are going to eat your cow's grass. That kind of thing. That's the problem. Those are the issues they're having. There's not enough water to feed the flocks. And so um, this reality reminds us that it is not the case, nor has it ever been the case, that the good boys get the riches and the bad boys get the poverty. It's a reality check for us. Esau's loaded. So as we see this genealogy and we see this story where Esau is going to move to the hill country of Seir because his possessions are too great. What we're not seeing is that Esau was bad. Esau was mean to Jacob. Esau's poor now. The reality is he's pretty loaded. He's pretty well off. And so, it's just a reminder, whenever we see that in Scripture, it's good for us to say it's it's not just the good people who get the good stuff and the bad people who get the bad stuff. That's not how God works. And anyone who tells you different, that if you have God, then you'll be a good guy and you'll get all the good stuff and you'll never have any problems or tribulations or trials is lying to you. Ask any believer how their week has been. And the reality is there's been some kind of trial or tribulation or hard time or hard decision. And so, don't believe that lie. The final thing is not to lose sight. The final thing not to lose sight of in a genealogy is uh, everyone dies. That's a sobering reality for us when we see a list in the genealogy. Consider, just uh, start in verse 31. Actually, start in verse 32. Bela the son of Beor reigned in Edom, the name of the city being, uh-huh. and Bela died. And Jobab the son of Zerah Bozra reigned in his place. Jobab died. And Husham in the land of the Temanites reigned in his place, and Husham died. And Hadad, the son of Badad, who defeated Midian in the country of Moab, reigned in his place, the name of the city being Avith. Hadad died. And Samlah of Masraka reigned in his place. Samlah died. And Shaul of Rehoboth on the Euphrates reigned in his place. Shaul died. And Baal-Hanan, the son of Achbor, reigned in his place. Baal-Hanan, the son of Achbor, died. And Hadar reigned in his place, the name of the city being Pau. His wife's name was Metabel, the daughter of Matred, daughter of Mezabel. These the Mezabel. What you're seeing is this repetition of um, they rose to power and they died. And they rose to power and they died. And, oh, look at this guy's in charge, and he died. And that's something we see in a genealogy list. Something to consider is to consider how the carnal and the earthly are suddenly exalted that they may immediately fall. This is the the offspring of Esau. And you see a whole lot of, you're exalted very quickly to a place of power so that you can pretty much immediately fall. And it just shows this fleeting nature of their kingdom here. There's a fleeting nature of the kingdom here. If there's no root, there's going to be hasty growth. And if there's hasty growth, it's going to equal up to quicker withering. That's really wordy. If there's no deep root, the growth is going to be quick. And if the growth is quick, it's not going to last. It's going to die. And that's what you're seeing here. Rising to power quickly and then falling quickly. Look at, verse, look at chapter 37. See that? Would you finish the chapter? Did y'all see that? No, we finished the chapter. We can't. Go ahead. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. 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 Yeah, there's absolutely reasoning for that and you see the differences between, you know, the kings and the princes and um but there's a real intentional lack of eternal language there that we can't miss. But there's blessing there. I mean, he's, he's going to be blessed. I mean, there's blessing in his life, but it's all temporal. And just as quick as these guys are rising to the power, they're falling. Chapter 37, verses 1 through 4. Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojournings in the land of Canaan. These are the generations of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was pasturing the flock with his brothers. He was, uh, he was boy... He, he was a boy. He was boy. With son Bilhah. Um, he was a boy with the sons of Bilha and Zilpah, his father's wives, and Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any of his sons, because he was the son of his old age. And he made him a robe of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. Now, we're introduced to Joseph. What do we learn about Joseph in these verses? There's a lot of specifics that God obviously wants us to know and his read that word. What are we learning? He's a bit of a tattletale. Daddy's boy. 17 years old. He's a young guy. His brothers hated him. What else? Daddy played favorites. <laughs> Daddy didn't care. Yep. What else? Yep. Shepherd. Really cool coat. Very colorful. Okay. He lives with his father in his father's land with his family. 17. He's daddy's favorite. We covered all that Particularly, he brings a bad report of his older brothers. We find out later that he's doing this because his daddy has asked him to. This is one of his jobs. How are your your brothers doing? Bring me a report. And evidently, he likes bringing bad reports. In verse 3, we see favoritism. We've seen it before. What does favoritism always do? Breeds division. That's exactly right. Favoritism will always breed division within a home. I was talking to a guy this week. He's a good guy. And uh, I was talking to a guy this week who's recently started uh, meeting, uh, started to meet and have specific time separately with each of his kids each week. So he's, he's been looking, he's got four kids, and he's wanting to have separate time with each of them each week. And he was really going on and on about how great this was. And I was thinking about how starkly different it would have been if he had just decided to do this with one of his four children. I mean, imagine that. Imagine it would be a very different thing. You have something that's good, and, and it's, it's just the whole household is healthier. But if you just choose one, what's going to happen? Would it be just a little bit more healthy? It's, exactly. Instead of having one that's a little healthy, you're going to have three that are more resentful. It would be considerably divided. It wouldn't be a little bit better because there's a little more effort there. And so, what we see is that favoritism always will breed division within a home. When you look back on your childhood, what do you remember about how, uh, what you were taught and what, how you were taught um, concerning Joseph's coat of many colors? Or yesterday, or whatever. Maybe it's not your childhood. We had songs about it. They were pretty Chipper. What are some things you remember about Joseph's coat of many colors when you? It's so sweet, isn't it? It did have vertical stripes. Yeah, yeah. Very true. The vertical is always more flattering than the horizontal. That's why they did that. Anything else you remember about? It made Joseph special. Possibly like a snowflake. Don't get, we can't get this wrong. Joseph's special. When you boil it down, this is really pretty over the top. I, I just want to bring it out. The favor is God-ordained. This is a God-ordained favor. You know why Joseph's going to be blessed among his brothers? Because God said so. You want to know why uh, there's going to be bowing down later on? Because God said so. However, the expression of it may not be the best way of expression giving the 11 other sons. This is, I mean, imagine a children's class where you're like, now uh, this was a coat, uh, but the other kids were jealous and they killed him and they sprinkled blood all over this coat. Think about if you brought home, instead of the beautiful coat, you brought home a blood-covered, tattered coat. Um, to hang on the refrigerator. Uh, It's a bit of a different um, picture. What I'm getting at is that uh, in verse 4, this did not make his brothers grateful for him. His brothers were not, they did not see the coat and say, man, I'm so glad Joseph's having a good time. Dad loves him. Uh, In fact, uh, it inspired hate. That's pretty extreme, right? It inspired hate. Thanks for the coat. Everybody hates me. And in fact, it it went on. In fact, they could not even speak peacefully to him. If you cannot speak peacefully to someone, it is not necessarily only best to endeavor to hold your tongue. At some point, you need to consider that there may be hatred, and it may be affecting both you and that person. So, what what is said there is that they hated him. And because they hated him, they couldn't even speak peacefully to him. And you may find that you yourself are around someone where you're like, man, I'm not even going to say anything because I just can't even speak peacefully around him. So, you know, I'm just going to not say anything. Well, just not saying anything may not be enough. You may, in fact, have hatred towards them that's going to affect both you and them. Why is it interesting that their anger is not towards Jacob, dad, but towards Joseph? Have you ever seen that? Why is that interesting? Or is it interesting? I guess we could first answer that it is interesting. I'm saying it is interesting, and now I'm asking why. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's not completely rational, yeah. Hatred and jealousy are l- largely irrational. Especially a little brother. Yeah. 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 You're. Ex- yeah. Uh huh. yeah uh- uh-huh. yeah this is very 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 self-serving these boys are not a, are not young little boys who I mean the youngest one's seventeen that's Joseph but these are not young little boys who are just generally eager to please their father. These are guys who are making power plays and collecting mandrakes, and Reuben actually slept with one of the concubines, and that's weird, and, and they're not like perfectly innocent boys. They're largely self-serving. And it's interesting because these are the 12 tribes of Israel we're talking about here. This pinnacle of greatness here. Um, being facetious. Um, they, it inspired hate. But it's interesting because the hatred was towards Joseph, not Jacob. Uh, Cain hated Abel. Esau hated Jacob. It's interesting. It wasn't that they were just jealous or they were just like, you know what, I, I really have a hard time conversating with my brother now. It, it goes to hate. And there's this extreme aspect of it. In John 15, 18, which we have just covered on Sunday mornings, Jesus reminds us, if the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. So we can know that that hatred can be traced in large part to God's favor. That's not abnormal. That God's favor in the life of an individual will create hatred in another person's life towards that person because of the favor that they're receiving from the Lord. Um, This may seem obvious, but I'm going to say it. Hatred is a really damaging thing. I mean... You may be thinking, thanks for that deep truth. How long did it take to dig for that? Hatred's really damaging. The reason I feel it's necessary to say that is first John two eleven states, you don't have to turn there, but you may write it in your notes. Whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he's going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. First John four twenty says, If anyone says I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he's not seen. What I'm getting at is that I bring this up because we're really prone to mislabeling who our enemies are. That's a real problem. We get really confused really quickly when we mislabel who our enemies are. Your spouse is not your enemy. Your brothers and sisters in Christ or a part of your church family are not your enemy. If we find ourselves feeling hatred towards one who, by God's design, we should have oneness, we must consider that we may be walking in darkness. I'll say that again. If we find ourselves feeling hatred towards someone with whom God's design is that we have oneness with that person, we have to consider we might be walking in darkness. And even more, we may be hindered in our love for our Heavenly Father. It's not, it's not okay to try to separate it. By God's design, you cannot feel perpetual hatred towards many while having a generally healthy relationship with him. It's his design that it doesn't work out like that. I hate everybody. I love Jesus. Leave me alone. No, that does not work. That's not God's design. He wants us to see that there's a connection here that's not to be overlooked. And it takes work to work through those issues. When you have those feelings, you're like, man, I, I kind of want to just punch that dude in the face. Okay, well, don't punch anybody in the face. They're not your enemy. Or when you're feeling towards your spouse, you're like, gosh, the, you know, this is bad, and I don't understand this, whatever. I mean, I remember a long time ago someone saying, your spouse is not your enemy, your spouse is not your enemy. If you can remember that, it'll take you a long way. We mislabel our enemies, and it causes a lot of confusion, and it might be because we're walking in darkness, and it affects more than just our relationship with that person. It'll also affect our relationship with the Lord. Look at verses 5 through 7. Now, Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. It's going well. Uh, he said to them, Hear this dream that I have dreamed. Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, and behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright. And behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. <laughs> his brothers said to him, Are you indeed to reign over us? He's a little brother, he's 17. Or are you indeed to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. Notably, not Joseph's brightest moment. This is a dream from the Lord. It's beautiful. It's so good. I'm thankful that God God gave Joseph this dream. It's it's hard when you're reading these because you kind of want to be like, is the dream good? Is the dream bad? Should he have said it? Should he not have said it? The dream's good. God gave it to him. I don't think he just had something bad to eat before dinner. I think he got a dream from the Lord, a vision. But there's got to be something said to the purpose of, of tact and diplomacy here. I'd like to speak to this because I feel like it's an elephant when you read these verses. Is it good or is it bad? Should he have said it? Should he not have? I would offer that it's not his brightest moment. He seems a little dense. Proverbs 25, 11. You don't have to turn there, but I would encourage you to write it down. It's really good. If, if, you, if you're one of those crazy people who has a problem finding the right words at the right time, we all are. Proverbs 25, 11 says, um, A word fitly spoken is like apples of gold in a setting of silver. I don't know that Joseph's word here is a word fitly spoken. My brothers, gather around. My sheep is like this, yours are like this. What do you think that means? I wouldn't call that fitly spoken, and I don't think that anybody would say, "Mm, that was like apples of gold in the setting of silver. Thank you for that. Paul Tripp observes, this is a great quote. God is at work taking people who instinctively speak for themselves and transforming them into people who effectively speak for him. It's a great quote. I'm going to say it again. God is at work taking people who instinctively speak for themselves and transforming them into people who effectively speak for him. I would offer Joseph here is instinctively speaking for himself. I would not offer that he has been transformed and is, is, is um, effectively speaking for the Lord. I would mainly offer that because he doesn't mention him. He mentions himself and his sheaves and how the brother's sheaves are bowing down to his sheaves. So I think he may be in that process of God taking a young, um, dense, at this point, Joseph, and transforming him into someone who effectively speaks for him, and not necessarily instinctively speaking for himself. A side note here is that it's about sheaves. I was reading through, and one commentator made a point that I think is worth noting, that these guys are herdsmen, not plowmen. I mean, they're out there working the herds. They're not out there... Um, growing crops, essentially. And what he's getting to is he says, it seems that God's revealing that this prophecy was not founded upon the present fortunes of Joseph. It's not like Joseph has a bunch of fortunes, and this prophecy that God is giving him to inform him of what's going to happen in the future is contingent upon what he has right now. And a lot of times, God will... That, that's the journey of faith. You can't just walk in what you see. I mean, the, what the sheaves part of this indicates that there's something more that God's going to do. And you're taking a step because you're walking by faith, not by sight. And so here, sheaves are not in sight. They're herdsmen, not plowmen. Does that make sense? It's a little bit more of an obscure point, but it's a point I think that needs to be made nonetheless, is that God is saying, I'm going to do something, but I want you to know that you're not going to see how it all works the whole time. It's not like you woke up and saw his sheaves standing up and his brother's sheaves actually bowing down to his sheave. There were no sheaves. God would provide that later when it was really needed. Verse 8, or verses, I guess, yeah, 8, starting verse 8, or verse 9, actually. Then he dreamed another dream and told it to his brothers and said, Behold, I have dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun, the moon, and the 11 stars, 11 brothers, were bowing down to me. Let's eliminate the sheaves and I'll just say me. But when he told it to his father and told his brothers, and his father rebuked him and said to him, What is your dream that you have dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow down ourselves to the ground before you? And his brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the saying in mind. Guess what? They are. This is true. God has shown him in a dream what's going to happen. We know how the end of Genesis turns out. And guess what? They all come and they all bow down. This is a God-ordained truth. However, uh, he shared it again. Joseph's a little slow to the point that even his father, with whom his favor rests, deems it necessary to reel Joseph in in front of the brothers. Joseph was the favorite. And daddy is saying, Joseph... Did you quit it with the dreams? You're kind of upsetting uh, everybody, including me a little bit, my little favorite. He had to reel him in. But consider, why do you think his father kept the saying in mind? I think this is a really important part of the chapter. His father kept the saying in mind. He rebukes him publicly. Don't say it again. You really think that's going to happen? It's going to happen. You really think that's going to happen? And then he shuts it down. The other boys see the dad reels him in. But it says he kept it in his mind. Why do you think that is? Mm-hmm. He realizes there's prophecy, that there's truth there. He realizes it's not to be completely ignored. It's interesting that he keeps it to himself here. One commentator said this, and I'd like, I'm going to share the quote and then we'll explain it. This method of pretending to be adverse to the truth when we are endeavoring to appease the anger of those who rage against it is by no means approved by God. Let me read it again. This method of pretending to be adverse to the truth when we are endeavoring to appease the anger of those who rage against it is by no means approved by God. you ever done this? I believe that's true, but I'm not going to act like it because everyone is going to hate me. Ever been there? Anybody? No. Okay. Yeah, you have. You all have. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah, he's pretending to be adverse to the truth. Mhm. I would imagine he is. Hmm. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. It's good that he does not ignore it completely. It's bad that he acts in front of everyone publicly as though that may not be what he really believes. But the, there, it's still kind of. I don't know. It's still kind of to be weighed. I mean, it, it would be hard for him to say, yeah, that's exactly right. But have you ever been in that place where you hear something and you're like, whoa, I've never heard that, but that makes some sense. But if I believe that, uh, my family's not going to like me anymore. Or, oh, I heard, I've never heard that, but that strikes and rings true in something inside of me. But I'm going to, I got friends who are going to call me crazy if I believe that. Been there. Be honest, this is hard. What happens when you see something as truth, but you know that your family, your friends, or maybe even your spouse might disagree with it? Do you act as though you too disagree? But for the sake of keeping the peace? Indeed, blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are the peacemakers, but we gotta consider some other verses. You can write these down in your notes. Zechariah 8:16. These are the things that you shall do: speak truth to one another. Render in your gates judgments that are true and make for peace. You see how truth and peace go together? Look at Zechariah 8 and 19. Therefore, love truth and peace. It's real easy to love peace at the expense of truth. But that's too costly. Second uh, John 3. Grace, mercy, and peace will be with us from God the Father and from Jesus Christ the Father's Son in truth and love. There's peace and truth. See it? (laughs) What I'm getting at is that peace at the expense of truth is too costly. It's not okay. Peace at the expense of truth is not a good trade-off. If you aim to be a peacemaker, which I strongly encourage, we need more of them, then you cannot let loose of truth in an attempt to lay hold of peace. It's a paradox. These two are impossible to separate. You will only make and keep peace to the degree that truth is heralded and guarded and trumpeted. I'm getting to the point that it's really easy to do exactly what Jacob did here. Where you hear something and you know it's true. You've read it. It says it. I've read it. I know it. But I'm going to act like I'm not so sure about that thing over there. Or you can disregard what this says by calling it what someone else said, like making this an ism. You can say that, oh, so-and-so says this, and I don't agree with it. However, the Word of God is breathed out by God and profitable for reproof and correction that the man of God may be equipped for any and every good work. Um... We cannot dismiss truth for the sake of trying to keep the peace. It doesn't work like that. Look at verse 12 through 17. Now his brothers went to pasture their father's uh, flock near Shechem. And Israel said to Joseph, Are not your brothers pasturing the flock at Shechem? Come, I will send you to them. And he said to them, Here I am. To him, here I am. So he said to him, Go now. See if it is well with your brothers and with the flock. And bring me word. So he's saying, You know how you go and give reports and tell me that your brothers aren't doing the work? Go do that again. So he sent him from the valley of Hebron, uh, Hebron, and he came to Shechem. And a man uh, found him wandering in the fields. I mean, we're not talking, it's go find your brothers in the woods. I mean, it's kind of hard. And a man found him wandering in the fields, and a man asked, what are you seeking? He said, I'm seeking my brothers. He said, tell me, please, where are they pasturing the flock? And the man said, they have gone away, for I heard them say, let us go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them at Dothan. Apparently Israel, Jacob, really trusts Joseph. It's good to see this. He's sending the youngest of the brothers to go and check up on and bring a report back on the older brothers who are shepherding the flock while Joseph, reminiscent of Jacob, was back at home. Remember Jacob was at home when Esau was out in the fields? Here we see that Joseph was at home while the brothers were out in the fields, but now he's going to find them. And we see trust between Israel and Joseph. Look at verse 18. They saw him from afar. Now these are his brothers, mindful. He's the young brother. He's favored by Dad, and he has this cute jacket. They saw him from afar, and before he came near to them, they conspired against him to kill him. He was just taking his jacket. They said to one another, "Here comes the dreamer, this dreamer. Come now. let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits." Then we'll say that a fierce animal has devoured him and we'll see what will become of his dreams. I'm kind of tired of his dreams. Are you tired of his dreams? Yeah. What did you say we kill him and then we'll see what happens with his dreams? Ha! This is pretty carnal. Pretty brutal. But when Reuben heard it, he rescued him out of their hands saying, let us not take his life. And Reuben said to them, shed no blood, throw him into the pit here in the wilderness, but do not lay a hand on him that he might rescue him out of their hand to restore him to his father. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the robe of many colors that he wore, and they took him and threw him into a pit. The pit was empty and there was no water in it. Water would have broken the fall, what we're getting at here. We throw you on your head and some concrete. Then then they sat down to eat. This is, again, one of those pieces of narrative where you really need to import your senses. A calm reading sort of loses the intensity of the situation. They're going to kill him. They all want to kill him, except for Reuben. The brothers are driven to the furthest degree. Import your senses and think about what this was like. What would it be like to be in the group of brothers as he's walking up? They're like, you know what, there's the dreamer. Let's just kill him and see what happens with the dreams. Think about how intense it is. Brothers who are already fairly high strung, as we know from Simeon and Levi's actions, Ten of them. Yeah, let's do this thing. And they're all riled up. And here comes Joseph in his coat, not knowing what's going on. Import your senses. They're driven to the furthest, the furthest degree. It's not a matter of, let's give him a hard time about those dreams. Or it's not a matter of, let's ridicule him. It's not a matter of, let's just dismiss him as the unimportant little brother. These guys see him, and just the sight of him provokes them to say, let's kill him and see what his, see about those dreams. To which another agrees. One guy stands up. Let's let's kill him. And another one says. Yeah let's do that. And then eight more say. Yeah let's do that. Until ten of them are ready to murder their brother. Mind you. These are the ten of the twelve tribes of Israel represented here. Yet it is the sexually immoral Reuben. Remember Reuben who slept with his father's. concubine, Who steps in to show some compassion. He doesn't completely step in and say that it's wrong because in doing so, he may have invoked the wrath of his 10 brothers who are ready to kill Joseph anyway. But his aim is to divert their passion for murder and to rescue Joseph later. That's the plan. It's interesting. What's the first thing they do when they approach Joseph? They rip that coat right off of them, don't they? Sometimes when you become angry or uh, disenfranchised with someone or you become hatred towards them, you kind of put it on an object or like, you can be going to a family gathering. And it's like, hey, everything's going to be fine. But if they talk about that stinking whatever, I'm going to kill him. And we kind of attach it to something. Here they attach it to the jacket. Where it's like, that, that jacket is the pinnacle of every reason. I hate that little punk. He's got these dreams. Dad likes him more. He's got this colorful, silly jacket. I don't even want to wear it. I don't even, that's not even my size. But I'm gonna, I'm, we're going to rip it off of him before we kill him. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah 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 there can be triggers in, in this point there's like a uh, this, is, this would be a trigger like that same thing if they talk about this it's on as long as they don't go that direction i'll be fine but if they go this direction it's on um uh i rip off the robe that was such a source of anger for him then it's disturbing They rip it off, and they throw him in the pit with no water, and he falls. I mean, it's deep enough not to be able to climb out up. It probably hits pretty hard. And they sit down and eat. Seems kind of callous. A little heartlessness there. That's done. Let's eat some food. He's over here moaning in the pit because they dropped him in there. They're going to eat some food. Grab a sandwich. Verse 25. They sat down to eat. And looking up, they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites. Now, who are the Ishmaelites? Yeah? What? Yeah? Descendants of Ishmael? Who is? Yeah, they're all... This is the side of the family you don't really talk about. This is, uh... You remember great-granddad who, you know, that whole thing, and that other lady we don't mention? Uh... Here's the Ishmaelites. And they're coming from Gilead with their camels bearing gum, (laughs) Uh, balm and myrrh. That's funny. On their way to carry it down to Egypt. So they're on the way to Egypt. Then Judah said to his brothers, now listen to Judah's words here. His words really encompass what all these guys are like. What profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? What profit is that, my brothers? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites. And let us... (laughs) let not our hand be upon him, for he is our brother, our own flesh. And his brothers listened to him. (laughs) Then Midianite traders passed by, and they drew Joseph up and lifted him out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites, out of the pit into slavery. Sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. Jesus was betrayed for 30. And they took Joseph to Egypt. Now, while the brothers aim to put on airs that they can't kill him because he is their flesh and blood, the reality is that there's just not as much profit in just killing him. Selling him would bring home the bacon and get rid of their problem. This is dishonest gain cloaked in righteousness. We've seen it before. For 20 shekels of silver. Look at verse 29. When Reuben returned to the pit and saw that Job... Remember, Reuben's plan was, hey, just put him in the pit and I'm going to come back later and I'm going to rescue him and give him back to dad. You guys are really a little crazy wanting want to kill him. When Reuben returned to the pit and saw that Joseph was not in the pit, he tore his clothes and returned to his brothers and said, the boy is gone and I, where shall I go? Then they took Joseph's robe. They actually did this. They took Joseph's robe and slaughtered a goat and dipped the robe in the blood. And they sent the robe of many colors and brought it to their father and said, this, is, this we have found. Please identify whether this is your son's robe or not. I mean, this really happened. Heartless. And he identified it and said, it is my son's robe. A fierce animal has devoured him. Joseph is without doubt torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his garments and put sackcloth on uh, his loins and mourned for his son for many days. All his sons and all his daughters rose up to comfort him But he refused to be comforted and said, no, I shall go down to Sheol to my son mourning. Thus his father wept for him. Meanwhile, the Midianites had sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard. You ever had that experience as a parent where you turn around, your kid's gone, you're like, ah, and your heart just drops? That experience where you're like, ah, where's my kid? I can't find my kid. And there's that panic. Panic sets in. And here, Jacob experiences not only the fear, but what seems to him to be a reality That in fact his favorite son is dead This is horrible This is the worst news that a parent could receive For a parent to have to bury their child Is contrary to nature And creates hurt and pain And mourning that is very real And very horrible And while Jacob is mourning Refusing to be comforted We see a pretty sick and disturbing occurrence In verse 35 All of his sons rose up to comfort him Yet no one came clean it's okay, dad. Joseph's in a better place. Joseph's still alive. Y'all are crooked. If you sin and do not repent, you will have to continue to sin to cover up the sin. It breeds secretiveness, and it breeds insincerity. They're comforting their dad at a, like a wake for his son, who he loves, who's not dead because of their... Strategic planning and trickery and deceitfulness and arrogance. And it breeds insincerity. I guarantee if you continue to not repent of your sin and you continue in it, you will have to sin more and lie more to cover it up. And you will find yourself a very insincere person acting as though you care when really all you want to do is make sure that no one knows what you're really into. In closing, we have the perspective uh, that there's obviously more going on here than anyone realizes. This is the first of 13 chapters where we're seeing God move in an amazing way to bring his people from one place to another so that they can experience his power in an amazing way and know who he is for real. Know him in a more intimate way than ever before. Be delivered from things that they thought they could never be delivered from. God's moving. Joseph is already at Potiphar's house. There's going to be some things that happen there that are crazy, but God's moving. We have this perspective that there's more going on than any of them know. Though he has the dream, even Joseph does not know that all God has planned. But these chapters are uh, intentionally designed to turn our minds to the providence of God. He's always at work. He's always at work. And that's not just a quippy saying that we have to try to get through difficult and undesirable times and circumstances. For the people of God, it is a certifiable reality and great comfort that God was not and he is not snoozing. You've heard that from this pulpit a lot. I remember in the fifth grade, I asked my Sunday school teacher why we never saw any miracles anymore. I was really disturbed by that. I remember it distinctly. Got a pretty lame answer. That's why I remember it. What I was getting at was that it seemed to me that since we weren't seeing any blind people being given sight, and we weren't seeing any crippled people being made able to walk, and we weren't seeing any dead people made alive, and we weren't seeing any multitudes fed with small lunches, it seemed to me as a kid that maybe God wasn't doing as much as he used to be doing. Just kind of where I jumped. I was like, is he not, did he do a lot more back then and he doesn't do as much here? This is the belief of many religions, that God has sort of set things in motion and taken a vacation. My mistake as a child was that I thought without miracles, people could not know that God was still doing stuff. I remember praying, God, just let them see a miracle on this mission trip so that they'll all believe. Do something crazy. Blow their mind, so that they'll believe. Because I thought that, if those miracles weren't there, that maybe no one would really know that God's still doing stuff. It was a child. The greater reality is that there's never a time where God is not moving. Isaiah says he will accomplish all his purpose. We can look back and see God's hand at work literally throughout generation after generation. Given the depravity of man, it's nothing short of divine movement that any of us should adore Christ, that any of us should set our minds on anything that's what, than what's right in front of us. That was fifth grade for me. In sixth grade, I got the new Michael W. Smith album. And uh, I'm actually gonna close the night with a quote from Michael W. Smith's song. Um, I remember I used to go to sleep listening to it in and, uh, and my little Gerard uh, boombox, ghetto blaster thing. Um, and and he sa- it said, the hand of providence is evidence that we can never make it on our own. And if, if any of y'all know that album, it's stuck in your head for like the next week because that was a whole lot of awesome at the time. Um, but the hand of providence is evidence that we can never make it on our own. Um, the point being that God has always been moving. We can look back and have a perspective that that's true. And we can know that he's always moving because we know the truth that he accomplishes, all of his purposes. And we know that any promises that he has ever made, he has always kept. So we can also know for certain that any promises he's made will be kept. And he's always moving. He's always doing things. There's never a time where it's like, okay, well, God is on vacation and my life stinks and that's that. That's not true. He's always doing more than we realize. And this is why I'm so passionate about connecting the dots for people. I want you to see the dots that are connected for us all the time. It's not a matter of collecting facts, but seeing how God speaks and moves and accomplishes in a myriad of ways all the time, never ceasing, completely in control for the good of his people and for the proclamation of his own glory. There are so many times where I see something happen on a Sunday morning, something that's communicated. I know what's going on in someone else's life. What they said to this person, and they were sitting in on a Wednesday study that somehow reiterated the same thing, even though it's different chapters. And God's just moving, and it's beautiful. I can look back. I was doing it with our staff, and I was looking at Ben's background and my background and how we should, we should hate each other. And, and it's, God's worked it to where there's these things where it's like, It's really amazing how there's this compliment there. And when we're in the office, I get to see it, but I can look back and see God's providence through it, generally through times that I thought were really bad. Like, oh, I made mistakes here, that's horrible, I'm never gonna amount to anything. And God's like, yeah, I'm using those mistakes to show you how much you need me. And you see this providence through it, and we're gonna see it all throughout the rest of Genesis. Let's pray. Lord, we're thankful for your word, we're thankful for this book of beginnings that reminds us that there was never a time that you were not, and that... um, You are a great creator, and you're always doing things, and we're very thankful for your providence. We trust you completely, and I know I state that boldly. However, I do want to be mindful of the prayer that I believe help my unbelief in those areas where we are struggling to to be mindful that you, in fact, do have a plan, and you have, in fact, not abandoned us. Um, I pray that you would help us in those areas of unbelief. We love you very much. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.